From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. That's right. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Joining me, you know, I feel kind of lonely. You know, I'm the only one in studio in Podcast Village Studio A today. But I've got a great gaggle of, of experts joining me. Uh, to begin with, joining us from the windy city of Chicago, uh, Laura Chavez. Laura, thank you for joining us. You know we love having you on the show. Absolutely. I try to come back as often as I can. Oh, yes. And uh, joining us from Boca del Vista down in the great state of Florida, he's a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is Ken Carradine. Hello, Ken. The Seinfelds and the Costanzas send their greetings. Ah, there it is. And to our north, he is the author of Politics on the Rocks and a former contributor to HuffPost. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Rich, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, doing fantastic. Uh, Wonderful. Keeping us uh, keeping us honest behind the board there, uh, Rob the Engineer. Hello, Rob. Hello, Justin. Hey, Rob, who, who's, who's, the, who's the newbie? This is uh, Colton, one of the interns here at Podcast Village. Hey, wow, you guys are getting interns. Hi, Colton. That's right. Yeah. Can we just call him intern? Please do. Okay, intern it is. Uh, hey, we've got a lot to talk about, but I, I want to start on something. We touched on it uh, about a week ago, and we, and we said we would take this on. But I would I would not do it with four old white guys in a studio. Wait a minute, hold on, really? Uh, all right, four <laughs> old guys in a studio. That's true. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to touch this. Um, I, I I I'm not going to do this with four guys in a studio. What I said what I would do is uh, I would wait until we had one of our uh, gracious and female. Uh, contributors on the on the line to join us to talk about this. The issue is uh, what's going on with this newfound attack on Roe versus Wade, uh, and it even had an impact today. Now, if you're wondering what happened today, for those listening to the live broadcast, today is Tuesday. Uh, but those who download as an, as a podcast, you'll know that you've probably already seen the news. The uh, Supreme Court said that a, uh, a, a, a that a provision in the Indiana law that was passed about, uh, I guess that was about a few weeks ago, may prohibit abortions motivated solely by race, sex, or disability should remain blocked. Uh, it did allow for part of the law saying that clinics had to bury or cremate the fetal remains but it did block the larger question uh oh i'm sorry and this is the law that was signed in 2016 by mike pence it had finally gotten to the uh supreme court it was blocked from going into effect by the seventh circuit court of appeals and basically they said um they didn't take a move on it because they wanted the lower courts to rule in in total about the law itself before they, they took the case. The question is, th- this is only one of, I mean, we can talk about the Missouri law, the Georgia law, the Louisiana law, the Arkansas. We can talk about all these laws that have started a fight 
in questioning the validity and the constitutionality of a woman's right to choose or, as we can call it, pro-life, pro-choice, call it Roe v. Wade, whatever. This is a big subject. Uh, I'm going to start off, obviously, I'm going to start off, Laura Chavez, this, what we, are we seeing, I mean, are we surprised, let me put it this way, are we surprised that we're seeing this now, or is this something we should have expected that this has been a long time in coming, and it just seems like this, it's just hypersensitive, hypersensitized by all the laws that are happening right now? Uh, this is definitely something that uh, has been building for quite some time. Conservatives have are finally getting to the point where they're seeing the fruits of their labor built uh, with a hundred. You know, I mean, Obama left about a hundred federal vacancies um, for ju- or a hundred judicial vacancies for the federal courts, uh, which then went to Trump. So that is a lot of you know conservative judicial power right there. He's able been able to. Uh, get uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh in there, which is a lot of judicial power right there. Uh, the Republicans or conservatives have been kind of building to this for decades. So there shouldn't be a huge surprise of it. I think it does have much larger impact because of the uh, rapid fire assault on the autonomy of a woman. Um, but this is something that definitely could have been seen coming down the road. And also, I'd like to point out, you, uh, smartly decided not to touch this topic with four old men, and yet the state of Alabama decided its 25 old men had more than enough power to do this, or to, you know, lock down the rights of a woman's reproductive choice. Let me ask you this, Laura Chai. I mean, as a woman, do you get the impression that they are, in fact, doing this in a vacuum? Uh, Explain what you mean exactly. Just I mean, does it seem like a lot of these policies are being driven by old guys in a room, in a Senate committee hearing room, driven by the far right, or are are there women that are taking this up as well? So this is is kind of a mixed bag answer, and I apologize for that. Yes, I think the bulk of the lifting is being done by a bunch of old men in a room who is, in all honesty, whose views haven't necessarily evolved with the march of time. That being said, uh, there was, I don't remember, I think it was like a CBS poll or something like that, not too long ago, like within the recent weeks, that said a lot of uh, conservative white women are also supporting this march, um, most of which are predominantly in the South or in those uh, quote-unquote flyover states like North Dakota or Missouri or those kinds of spaces, but it's actually being supported a lot by white women. Um, And I think one of the things that also needs to be noted when you have that as when you make a statement like I just made is that a lot of the polling that is being put out there is really hard to read and really hard to predict because of the questions that are being asked. It is uh, the topic of abortion is so, I don't, I don't want to say nuanced, but so specific that you can get a lot of answers and every answer is very personal because a lot of pollsters are just going and, you know, asking the question of what do you think of abortion? Abortion can mean so many things. What do you think of uh, medical abortion? What do you think of self-termination? What do you think of abortion in the first trimester? What do you think of abortion when it's incestor rape? What do you think of an abortion when it's in the third trimester? What do you think of an ectopic, an ectopic pregnancy abortion? There are so many different ways 
that you can think about it. And when those questions are posed, a lot of people just default to the, like, general idea of an abortion is when you kill a baby uh, or a fetus or whatever you want to consider the um, the creature inside of a woman in utero. That being said, the stage of development matters to people. The, the viability, the woman's health, all of that stuff should be said because when you actually phrase it and break the question down, I think it's something like over 70% of people in the U.S. are pro-choice. Now, that doesn't mean they're pro-choice for them. A lot of people say, like, I am personally pro-life. I actually have a lot of family members who I've discussed this with in Ohio, and they have said, well, I'm pro-life for me, but if it's something that a woman needed to do, I would understand. Um, The nuance of that is not lost on me because that kind of means that keeping the baby is a choice. Allowing someone else to to not keep the baby is a choice. Right. So the general idea of you know, how this is being framed, if it's being done in a vacuum, is actually, like, a really difficult question to answer. Well, Rich, let me put it in another way. It, it, it seems to me that with, going off of the, the answer that Laura just gave, have we as Americans just oversimplified the question of life or choice as a very, you know, it's either life or it's abortion, it's either life or choice, there's no in-between. Have we oversimplified the question? I think the elites have done that. I think the American people, as you, I think that's correct, it's very nuanced. I think that the terms pro-life and pro-choice themselves I tend not to use because they're basically made up by the different sides. You take the, you know, if you take the, if you take the, you take the term pro-life, obviously that was made by people who are opposed to abortion rights. People who are pro-choice use it to this people who support abortion rights. So I try to use it in term. I try to be as neutral as possible by using the term abortion rights. I think that there are plenty of nuances, and you know, it's not necessarily the flagship issue for most people. There's a group on one side and a group on the other side that, in terms of um, certainly liberals who would be who would be pro-choice and, and Democrat or be who would support abortion rights, and others who would not who make that their flagship issue. But for most candidates, it's one of a series of issues. It doesn't show up, for example, you know, you look at the polls, health is up there, the economy's up there, immigration's up there. Um, abortion itself is usually down, is usually further down into the polls. And it's interesting, there's kind of, there's kind of political dynamic here because a lot of the Democrats, um, where they used to be that many Democratic presidential candidates actually support or opposed to abortion rights and have since changed as they've kind of seen their their their, politi- their party change. I mean, Bill Clinton once once opposed abortion rights. Al Gore had to change his position on that. Um, recently, actually, you saw Tim Ryan. He's the most recent candidate who the congressman from from Youngstown, Ohio, who's running. And he had always been a relatively liberal Democrat, but that was the one issue where he, he was really persona non grata in the party, so he changed his position. Um, you go back, I think the last Democratic presidential candidate who was who who who, who untetteredly op- opposed abortion rights would have been Reuben Askew, who ran in 1984, and he got 2.5 percent in the Iowa caucuses. So I think that was kind of a lesson to future Democrats that it's very hard to be a Democrat running for um, to to be a Democrat running for the, the Democratic presidential nomination if you support abortion rights. On the other side, for the Republican Party, you have Bill Weld, who's running in the Republican in the Republican Party against Trump. And he's pretty, pretty unabashedly pro-choice. 
I think the, um, you know, you've had other candidates in the past. Maury Taylor, for example, ran in 2000, Arlen Specter, George Pataki, but they never really got anywhere. But I think just to, to simplify the question, though, I think that it does, it does simplify it when you say you're pro-choice or you're pro-life. Most people are a little bit more nuanced, and I think someone like Joe Biden, for example, says that he personally supports the Catholics' teachings on abortion but would not impose that on other people. Another one would be Jimmy Carter, who says he's personally opposed to abortion but doesn't necessarily um, be, believe that it should be imposed on – that he would necessarily impose his, uh, his beliefs and would uphold Ro- Roe v. Wade, for example. Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, you know, I've got to moderate this, and I've got to take both sides of this, of this point. I just want to be clear on my position on this. And I've said this for years. I've even told candidates to give this uh, description. It's a description that's very close to what Rich said. It's a – I am pro-choice. I hope that the woman chooses life. But that is not my decision, mm-hmm. and I, I, I and I think that that is not so much the norm anymore. That is becoming less and less the norm, and now it's either you got to pick a side. I don't. I don't think that's the case, Ad, Admiral Ken. Why? So well, so so much like Justin, I, I've been a voting Republican most of my adult life, um, and and on this subject, I've always taken a hard break. Uh, departure from uh, uh, how the party or party doctrine, um, like like Justin, I I am pro-choice, but I'll even go so far as to say that um, you know it, it always boggled my mind that the party of less government wanted to insert itself into one of the most uh, personal decisions a person or a family could possibly make. Um, I do think that one nuance of the Alabama law should be discussed and that's the fact that yeah a bunch of old white guys or predominantly white guys you know decided that this is the time no, those, were, those were 25 very white guys uh, put, uh, put, yeah put, yeah hang on put to, to, to put to put this uh, this law in place but let's not forget that the governor of alabama yep. is a woman named Kay ivy right and, and and if you've not seen her on tv you know you should be afraid of her because she's just a frightening person on so many levels, um, and and as someone who still got relatives, male and female, back in the state of Alabama, I'm very very tied into you know the thinking and and uh, the feelings of, of of the people in in that state on this law. Um, I do think, however, that there's a there's 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 a bigger strategy in play here, and I'm not a consp- conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that if you look at at what has happened, what has transpired. In the last 15 or 20 years, the court is, you know, is is going to the right. Laura was absolutely correct about that. That it wasn't helped out by uh, President Obama departing and leaving a bunch of uh, vacancies on the bench. But let's face it, you know, Mitch McConnell had, had pretty much decided he wasn't going to let any of those get filled. But as the court moves further to the right, there is a belief that if Roe v. Wade is challenged, it'll get overturned by a more right-leaning um, Supreme Court. And and things seem to be headed that way. And I, I don't think it's a good idea because, let's face it, you know, the people that can't that can't afford abortions right. will get the most, will get them done. And those are the people who are economically challenged, both black, white, Latino, you know, people who can't who can't afford to go to a good hospital out of the state or out of the country to get it done. But let me and ask you this die, question. It'll be back to the 1950s all over again. All right, let me ask this question, Admiral Ken. Though, uh, you know, when you when you talk about 
when you when you talk about the the, the issue of uh, the constitutionality of it, if this does get challenged in the courts, I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk that this is going to get overturned based on who we have on the bench currently. I have, you know, Justice Roberts already addressed this, and Justice Roberts was already part of the the law has been decided uh, sector of the bench. And I would venture to say that there are probably more practical ju- uh, justices on the Supreme Court, and I would even put Gorsuch in that, uh, that are saying that the law is, in fact, been set under Roe v. Wade. It has been decided. This is the constitutionality of it. We're not going to refight. We're not going to repaint this wall. Uh, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with with any of what you said with regard to the current temperament of the Supreme Court as as what we've uh, seen from their statements. All I'm saying is that this is the strategy of the people uh, in Alabama and Indiana and other places that are passing these ridiculous laws. And their belief is that if the court moves further to the right, they'll keep hammering and hammering at it and they'll get it, they'll get it undone. But uh, Laura Chavez, if, I, yeah, I was going to say if I can actually jump in on, yeah, that go ahead. I think that uh, you bring up a very good and valid point, especially when you take specifically the case in Alabama. Uh, this is an extreme bill; like this is extreme by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you had. Uh, I mean, you've like, got people. You got like you got pro life people saying you got pro life people saying this is way way too extreme. The Alabama yeah, exactly. rule. Exactly. So I think what's going to happen is that will probably, the way it works, is that's probably going to make its way up to the Supreme Court. It is going to be rejected. There's no way that is going to happen. But I will say one thing that should, I, I guess, give me faith or give you faith or anyone who's listening that, you know, thinks this bill is completely a monster bill, um, is that about two years ago, the Fifth Circuit, or the Eleventh Circuit, sorry, the Eleventh Circuit, which deals with cases brought up through the Alabama, uh, the, through the state of Alabama, had a similar case to this, it, not as extreme, but it kind of addressed abortion. Right. Um, and the court actually ruled that it didn't have the ability to reverse Roe versus Wade. Not that it didn't want to, but it didn't have the ability to based on essentially the autonomy of a woman and the ability for her to have the right to choose. Because when you take away the freedom of a woman to say like, hey, I want to have a baby now, or I don't want to have a baby now, which in all honesty in this very case is far more important for a woman to be able to say right now is not the time for health reasons, for financial reasons, for age reasons, for the way this child was conceived reasons, for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. The woman's body is essentially what the 11th Circuit said. So that being, I just want to make that clear that like right now, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to take up cases like the Alabama one. I think what's probably going to happen is that it will take up cases, but it will take away those take up those cases that are slowly chipping away at the rights of these facilities. Right. It's taking up the hallway, the size of the parking lot. It's taking up. It's going to sometime take up, you know, the width of the hallway, or the or it's going to say, well, having a 18 hour waiting period between your first consultation and your actual procedure isn't putting an undue burden on the woman. That, those are the cases that I think are really going to do a lot of damage. I think this Alabama one is just a, a really stupid action by a bunch of men who don't really know what they're doing. And, and Admiral Ken brings up a good point. And KIV, who, again, as I mentioned before, is a very white woman from the South. Right. And yep. let me ask this question, though, Laura Chavez. And, again, I've got to play devil's advocate as moderator here. Of you know – 
I, I personally know many adult couples, adult women that have sought to have children that cannot. And when we see, you know, women making choices, I mean, these are either currently or potential life-bearing humans. Have we gone over the edge as far as becoming almost resilient to the fact of science and not looking at the cause of that's actually a human being growing inside a, a, a pregnant woman. No, because at that point you're looking at the Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I mean, but is you, it that yes, extreme? Is it that I, extreme? No, is I, it that I, extreme? I have a lot of friends. It, it sure it looks like it's pointing that way. If you take up these kinds of arguments, I have a lot of friends who have you know who are also wanting children but cannot have them. I also have a lot of friends who have decided to have abortions because of different things that have happened in their lives. Uh, knowing both sides of that argument. And to be quite honest, like I know a lot of people who have had um, biological miscarriages where well, the woman's body rejects the pregnancy, and that is also painful. If you want an abortion, it should be your absolute right to choose not to have one. I understand the argument that it, it is a potential life, but you are by them saying that fetus, the life of that fetus is more important than the woman carrying it. Then you are no longer looking at the woman as a woman, as a citizen, as a person. You are looking at them as essentially as a breeding ground. Richard Bino, do you buy into that argument? I think, yeah, no, to a certain degree I do. I think I just want to make one clarification, though. Um, in terms of Roe v. Wade, a lot of people believe that Roe v. Wade, what, what would happen prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973 is that the states decided. Um, whether they could have whether what a type of abortion laws they wanted to have, and the Supreme Court basically ruled that there was a constitutional protection to abortion at least in the first two trimesters in the third trimester there was less of one and I just wanted to say one other thing about it too is that assuming that Roe v Wade or planned parent let 's assume Roe v Wade is overturned if it is overturned it, what happened what would happen is states like Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana would likely pass restrictive abortion laws. Whereas I think more, I think certainly more libertarian states in the West and certainly the states in the Northeast, you know, certainly you would never see this happening in any states in New England. Um, and what would happen is that poor is certainly poor women in states like Louisiana and Alabama would either not be able to get an abortion or somehow would be able to secure an illegal abortion, something to that effect. Whereas you would have wealthy, you would have wealthy people in those states who could go to another state that does not disallow abortion. So if you're in Louisiana, for example, and if Louisiana passes a law which disallows abortion under all circumstances, that person has, that person is certainly could certainly go over to a state, say, you know, they could certainly fly to, say, New Jersey, which likely would never ban abortion. They could get their abortions done that way. So it would not, there, it, it's not a blanket ban. There's nothing in Roe v. Wade being overturned that would say, okay, now abortion is completely outlawed in the entire country. It's just a matter, it's a state-by-state, territory-by-territory. And obviously, the more socially conservative states you have, the more Christian states, you'd certainly have the deep south where you would restrict it, but I don't think you'd see it in the libertarian west or, the North, or, the, or certainly in the northeast. Admiral Kennedy. But some of those, but some of those states, uh, and I think, and I could be wrong, but I do know there's at least one of the states that, that we're talking about that, that has passed one of these uh, one of these 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 laws uh, prohibits people from going out of the state 
to have an abortion. That if they leave, they have an abortion, they come back, they can be arrested. And I think it was, Al- yeah. that was That's the Alabama the Al- law. Yes, part of the Alabama that law. Is, yeah. And so I think, you know, I think the best the best solution here is for um, is for laws like the Alabama law to go to the Supreme Court and for the Supreme Court to say once and for all, okay, guys, kids, enough, you know, settled law, let's move on. But, but and I don't, I, I don't, and I, I don't know, I don't know what the chances of that happening are, especially in this administration. But you know, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep the the, uh, the prayers and hopes going that that some some rational and sane heads start uh, taking control of some things here. Lord Chavez. Yeah, and yeah, and if I could, I'm going to jump on both of those points a little bit. One, uh, Admiral Cummings, great. It would be great if the Alabama law or the Alabama situation. I, I hesitate to call it a law because it's so ridiculous and ludicrous in my mind. So I apologize if that offends some of the listeners. Uh, but this Alabama thing, um, if it did make it to the Supreme Court, I think that would be almost great because then it would be really difficult for, you know, I think uh, Justice or Chief Justice Roberts would definitely like take a look at this. He, while yes, is on the conservative side, I feel like over over the course of the next, you know, however many decades he's on, until there is another uh, left-leaning justice on, he's going to be kind of the director. He's not going to be a swing vote the way Kennedy was, but I think he's going to be a director every once in a while on something like this. He probably will side with, you know, Breyer and Ginsburg and um, Sotomayor and uh, Kagan. Right. So I think that would be great if it did. And then everyone was like, well, that was the law decided every 30 years. We'll probably revisit it. But guess what? We're clear for another three decades. You're welcome. Next next generation of females. <laughs> but the thing is, I think what would happen is they would say, OK, that one didn't work. This is something that conservatives feel will rally their base. And keep in mind, like AOC rules released a silly video right. of her dancing in college and it motivated me. Yeah. Well, um, I, I hear myself being played off. No, 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 no. We just got to go to, we got to go to break. We got to go to break, Laura. Okay. We're going to continue this discussion. We're going to continue this discussion when we come back in two minutes. This is the best political talk show you never heard of from Podcast Village Studio A in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. That's the way I feel today. Because he's making a plaything of my devotion That's the way I feel today Without any reason or a word to say That man turned his keys in and he packed and went away What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean That's the way I feel today
That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we're back on the best political talk show you never heard of. Joining me remotely, Admiral Ken Carradine, Rich Rubino, and Laura Chavez. We're talking about the assault on Roe v. Wade. We're talking about pro-choice, pro-life, and the debate that's currently being fired up by the laws happening in Alabama, Georgia, Missouri, you name it. Uh, it, it's become a big deal, even places like Ohio, Mississippi, Kentucky. It's it's really become an issue now. But when we left, we were talking about, you know, we were talking about the, the legalities of it and how this might play out in the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court takes up one of these uh, one of these cases, which it eventually will. But let's look at the broader aspect of this. Um. I get the impression, Rich Rubino, that it, when we talk about the the issue of pro-life, pro-choice, and I know that you stated in the last segment you hate those terms, but for simplification, when we talk about pro-life, pro-choice, has this become almost a bi-coastal issue and that a majority of Americans actually think that maybe we're too lax on this that we need to look at somewhere in between and is there an in-between we can find yeah no it's interesting when you say are people pro-choice or pro-life usually the pro- more people are pro-choice than pro-life if you use those two terms but then you use terms for example and a lot of this comes down to to linguistic to semantics for example when you use the term partial birth abortion you get polls that show 70 percent of people say they're not in favor of it um, but then you don't. But then when you when you get really into the weeds of what a partial birth abortion is, that it's a late term abortion that's only used in very specific circumstances, usually when there's a risk to the health of the mother or there's a possibility that the fetus will not be viable. The polls change, so I think that shows, like any issue, I mean the American people are not necessarily informed about you know that's why that's why you that's why you use this it's about polarities of pro choice and pro life. I think that. But I, I do think I do think though there is in terms of social conservatism, you know the question I always hear and it's kind of something that, you know libertarians will always will always you always say how can somebody like Ron Paul for example who's against government intervention in almost anything how can he declare himself 100% pro-life? And it's an interesting question because it doesn't seem to make sense consistently. What someone like that would say is, well, I believe that you support life in order to get liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You need to have life is essentially what they say. And then there are people that. There are some people, I think, and I'm just trying to explain the politics of this. There are social conservatives on the Democratic side, and this is where it comes more by coastal. You, know, you can see these in some of the most liberal areas of the country, for example. There are, you know, there are little citadels in Boston, for example, where there are very, a lot of socially conservative Democrats. Ray Flynn, for example, used to be mayor of Boston, right, pretty liberal right. and everything else. Bob Casey used to be the Bob Casey, the senator from Pennsylvania. <clears throat> His father was governor of Pennsylvania. They're very liberal on union issues, very liberal on government services. They do, but they did believe that consistently that if you bring someone into the world, that the government should take care of them basically from womb to tomb. That's a lot more of a consistent position. I think where the Democrats have an opening in terms of going after whoever, in terms of going after Donald Trump here, is say is essentially saying okay to the Republicans, and they can go after him certainly in a lot of states. And I even saw, you know. 
you can say that they, that they support abortion, that they're opposed to abortion rights under any circumstances. Um, even Joe Manchin, for example, in those, the state where Donald Trump, Joe Manchin, a senator from West Virginia, that was Donald Trump's best state in 2016. And Joe Manchin was reelected in 2018, and he took a lot. He was known as one of the last pro-life Democrats, you know, him and Senator Casey, and to a certain degree, Doug Jones. And Doug Jones is a little more moderate on her. The last three Democrats in the Senate who declare themselves as pro-life. Um, you know, Doug Jones is pro-choice, but he has voted for some provision, some restrictions on abortion. But what he would say when he would go after his opponent in that primary, he would say he would take the position. He would say, "Yes, I'm pro-life. My opponent is pro, you know, believes that." is pro-life in the case of rape and incest, and, that, and, and you know, even if he takes the extreme position on it, in other words, he's saying what I take is a more moderate position. I think that works in a lot of places. Um, even go back, even in Massachusetts, I'll go back to 2002, Mitt Romney, one of his um, highlights in his 2002 presidential campaign or gubernatorial campaign is he was trying to distance himself from the National Republican Party, and he presented himself as being pro-choice. Right. But in there, and there was a debate where he was debating Shannon O'Brien, who was uh, who was a Democrat, right. and he actually he was he even though he was himself was declaring himself pro-choice, very similar with Joe Manchin, he said Shannon O'Brien though does not believe that there should be any parental consent for a 16-year-old, for example, just like there's and then he made the statement he said you know if you had need consent for a, for a tattoo shouldn't you need consent for an abortion something to that degree and actually helped him with a lot of pro, even pro-choice people because they don't necessarily go to one polarity or to the other. Um, but you know, I mean, obviously, when it, when you ask the when you ask the when you ask the question of all the Democratic major Democratic presidential candidates right now, you know, every single one of them declares himself pro-choice. The last convert was Tim Ryan of Ohio, and Senator Casey from Pennsylvania was seriously considering a presidential bid, and he would have been the only pro-life Democrat in the in the, in the right. race. But he re- eventually he rejected right. and decided not to do that. But um, his father, I'll just let, leave, I'll just end with this: his father, the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania wanted to speak at the Democratic National Convention in 1992, and he was disallowed from doing it. And later it was later they made the statement that he had not supported the ticket, even though he had supported the Clinton-Gore ticket. And Al Gore had to apologize and called up Governor Casey and said that we do accept alternative views and, you know, so that the Democrats were seen as inclusive. I think that's the worst possible fear for both parties is that they're seen as only kind of this one-dimensional cartoon of either pro-choice or pro-life in reality, there are nuances. Right, right. Uh, Admiral Ken, you know, we, we were talking in the last segment about how these laws really put uh, the, the pressure on those that are usually lower income uh, minorities uh, that are in some instances not fully or partially or even uneducated. Uh, but if you look at the areas that this is the biggest uh, war cry for, you know, even in the minority communities, you you know, you look at you know the 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 people of influence in those southern and midwestern uh, rural areas where there is a large minority community, like in Alabama, like in Mississippi, the preachers, the pastors of these churches wield incredible, incredible power. And they tend to be very conservative on this fight with uh, the question of pro-life, pro-choice. Is there almost uh, almost a, 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 a bizarre world that we're going to see that it could be minority leaders such as the pastors, the preachers, that are going to 
possibly keep some of these restrictive laws in play in some of these states? Well, you know, you, you, you bring up a really, a really good point. Um, I would say, you know, as someone who grew up uh, in, in Alabama um, and, and attended a uh, um, uh, predominantly African-American Baptist church, believe it or not, Justin, uh, <laughs> over the— uh, I believe it. Over, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it now. Over, over, the, the, uh, over, over 18 years. Um, I will say that it, it has been a very interesting— um, transition to watch. You know, these at, at one point were possibly some of the most conservative uh, people uh, I uh, on on most issues that you could ever you could ever you could ever want to meet. That said, when it came to civil rights, when it came to rights of of of, uh, of prisoners, uh, rights of people in jail. Um, rights of women, uh, the, the, uh, they're uh, fixing their disenfranchisement. Uh, that, that conservativeness, for lack of a better way of putting it, starts falling away very quickly. I think when they, they start looking at the people in their churches, because uh, these by and large are not rich people, um, and when, when, when the, the cry goes up uh, about this law, I think rather than them coming out one way or another against it, I think what you will see is them staying mum. They won't say anything. Laura Chavez, I mean, you know, we bring up the rural communities, but we, you know, we also see the same dynamics in the uh, in the urban communities. Like, for example, Chicago, Detroit, uh, New York, Newark, uh, any even here in Washington D.C. The, the 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 I guess the influence of the very conservative, socially conservative pastors in a lot of these churches, particularly in the minorities, and and we haven't even brought in the Catholics yet. Is is there going to be a fight between those who believe in the political rights of the woman versus? those true believers of Catholicism or the leaders in these minority community churches that, uh, that, that wield so much influence? Uh, pro- probably. I'm not a soothsayer, so I can't say definitively, yes, absolutely, that, that is coming. You know, winter is coming, who knows? But um, I would say most likely that is going to be the case. But one thing I would want to make a note of is that religion with people 40 and under has dropped so dramatically. So a lot of these, uh, you know, pastors and ministers and priests that are preaching this are preaching this to a much older audience. So, yeah, but with that said, the much older audience, those are the people that vote. So the message that is getting out via the pulpit or, you know, the whatever type of uh, church altar you have, um, that message is mainly going to people who have already kind of made up their minds. They come from a different generation that maybe, you know, saw the actual path or the actual like decision on Roe versus Wade, or they actually remember uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey a lot better than someone like who might be a millennial. Um, Those things are going to show up, maybe not in this. I don't think that's going to be the deciding factor in 2020, but I do think that's going to be 
something to think about in maybe like 2032. A lot of the demographics will change. The older generation might not be, the older generation now might not be, not to be morbid, but around to vote. And with their votes gone, the older generations that do vote will have slightly more progressive views, whether it's, you know, from their own experiences, from what they had, what they heard in church, or from, you know, what they see on HBO. Admiral Ken, let me ask this question. And, and, and for the audience, I'm going to be blunt about this. I'm just going to rip off the Band-Aid. Today, if Dr. Martin Luther King were alive, is Martin Luther King Jr. pro-life or pro-choice? Ooh, wow. Um, well, I go back to what, what I said before. Um, you know, these, you know, in the time frame that, that I remember Dr. King, remember I was really, I was, I was uh, six or seven years old when he was assassinated in 1968. Right. So, so I, I'm, 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 and I'm looking at this from, from the historical, historical perspective of seeing videos, hearing recordings of speeches, the whole nine yards, um, uh, as well as, you know, my own, um, you know, my own recollection of how things were. By the way, Ralph Abernathy was, was the uncle of one of my girlfriends in, in high school. Right. Um, so, um, so what I would say is I honestly believe that uh, Dr. King, uh, I believe he, he, would, he would come out in favor of doing whatever was necessary to help poor people and people who were who felt disenfranchised. So I guess by extension, I think he probably would have a have a pro-choice stance on this. I really do. Richard Bino is a political historian. You agree? Yeah, I do agree with that. And you know, this is just a supposition. Obviously, we don't know. But right. Right. The reason I'm I mean, the reason I'm saying this is because if you look at where Martin Luther King Jr. was, not so much in, in six. You know, that we remember him as four and sixty five who worked with Lyndon Johnson to get the Civil Rights Act, to get the Voting Rights Act. But a lot of people forget about the Lyndon Johnson of 66, 67, and 68, who was also very liberal on a lot of other issues. In 67, he broke with the Johnson administration, for example, on the Vietnam War and became a vociferous opponent. And he called the United States um, policy in Vietnam. He said it was the biggest purveyor of violence in the world today. So he became very much of an anti, very much of an anti-establishment figure. And you look at the polls when he died in '68. He was about there were like 65 percent of the country had an unfavorable opinion of him. So why do I, okay? So how does this relate to abortion specifically? The reason I say that is I think he was a liberal. He would have been known as a liberal or perhaps a democratic socialist on most issues. And also I look at other. I look at, I guess we, we wouldn't really call him his contemporaries, but people who have, who followed him, for example, Jesse Jackson, who I know his various became very pro-choice, and a lot of um, this, a lot of folks in the Southern Baptist Leadership Council um, are also pro-choice. I know certainly Al Sharpton, and those would be, I think, the people that you would see. I think Jesse Jackson specifically would be the, if you're trying to find anybody that's tantamount to who he was, or somebody who was a contemporary, someone who was a disciple of him. They certainly took that position. It would be hard for me to envision a scenario where Martin Luther King, um, you know, says that he believes that life begins at conception. My guess is that he would have that personal belief. But from a political standpoint, since he moved so far to the left, it's hard for me to envision a scenario where he would not, where the abortion would not come, as well as his anti-war stance, as well as his, you know, stance for more government funding and everything else. Lord Chavez, I want to go back to something that you answered uh, earlier in this segment. Uh, when we were talking about the aspect and the influence of the 
of the religious figures, the uh, I, I guess the um, Roe v. Wade view from the pulpit. When you you had men, you had mentioned that in fact the the preachers, the priests, uh, those of the cloth are talking to a much older audience that less and less young people are becoming uh, uh, or are becoming less active in organized religion. But the the one thing I do realize today is the young people that do get involved with organized religion are more devout, are more uh, by the book, they're more, you know, whether it's Catholic, whether it's Baptist, whether it's Church of Christ, whether it's Anglican, whatever you want to call it, the young people that are active in religious faith today are hugely, hugely devout and a lot more strict when it comes to that. Is that an aspect that we haven't paid attention to that we may need to look at as this goes forward in discussions? It's definitely something to look at, but I think uh, one thing to kind of remember is that politics is a numbers game. Uh, As devout as they might be, um, odds are they're still going to be in the minority and not like a slight minority, the extreme minority, like 20, 30% minority, whereas the rest of, you know, millennials and, you know, below are not exactly uh, devout anything. Uh, With that said, I think that there will need to be a place for them in this conversation. And whether that is, you know, along the lines of the Alabama laws, that's, you know, where they need, that's where they feel passionate about. That's their choice to be there. That's their right to be there. But that doesn't mean that their opinions need to necessarily dictate the law. It's similar to how right now you see a lot of um, white nationalists kind of coming up. And I'm not, uh, I do not want to, I want to make this clear. I am not saying that white nationalists are in line with the pro-life party. I'm just saying that there is another group of people that is small that was kind of hidden in the darkness, but had a leader kind of come out and has given them new life and new breath. I want to make that very clear. I'm not calling pro-life people. I'm not drawing a parallel between the pro-life movement and the white nationalist movement, but I am saying that there is, there is a party for them. There is a place for them in the political sphere, whether it's, you know, going to put someone in the white house. I don't know, but the odds are their voice will be quieter partially because if in most uh, religions, it is a far more patriarchal society and while every one person gets one vote, yes, uh, the odds are it will be that number of sorts, that number of really devout uh, millennials and below and people in their 40s, that number can kind of be cut in half because half of them are going to be women. And women's aren't, women aren't exactly given the most uh, weight to their opinions, uh, you know. Right. In those spaces, you're happy to have uh, women who support the idea and they're happy to bring them along, but rarely are they speakers, rarely are they the ones getting the rally call. Uh, rarely are you going to get someone like that in that position. Laura, let me, let me just ask this question as, as the female uh, on the panel today. Is, is there some sort of middle ground that a majority of women could find as far as protecting the life of a, you know, and I know, and, and we can get into the when does life begin? 
You can get into the heartbeat rule and all that. But just from a principle, is there some sort of common ground that says that we shouldn't make it necessarily that readily available, but we should still allow the woman to have a choice into what she does with her body? Uh, I, I clearly have made my position on this made, or I've made my stance on this clear. So I just, with that said, I actually think being pro-choice is that, is that middle ground. You are no longer regulating who has to have a baby, who has to have a baby. As you, you and Admiral Ken and Rich all pointed out, keeping the child is one of the choices you can make. Being pro-choice doesn't mean you think everyone should have, every teenager, every person who was raped, every woman who wants to focus on her career, every, you know, anybody who is everyone should have an abortion. All it's saying is that if you know that you will not be, if this is not the right time for you, if you aren't making a living wage, if you had an, uh, if you were taking birth control or had uh, something implanted to prevent pregnancy because you didn't want to, if you, you know, don't have insurance, if you know that, you know, you are, if your daughter is 12 and she was raped, it's not saying that you have to have a abortion. I think that is one of the major misconceptions that a lot of people make. Being pro-choice doesn't mean you think everyone should have an abortion. It just means that you want to give people the option to make sure that their life, they're living their best life, and if and when they do want to have a child, that child has the best opportunity for a life. That's one of the reasons that I think so many people have a real issue with with people who are pro-life. Because there are so many things that need to happen before you start banning abortions. You need to look at better child care in the U.S. You need to look at making maternal leave mandatory. You need to look at making sure everyone has a living wage. You need to foster a better sex education program in the U.S. other than abstinence only. You need to look at your foster care situation. If you do thousands, and then you also need to look at restricting the reproductive rights of men. To be perfectly honest, 100% of all pregnancies involve a man. Um, with that said, it's a great stat. All of the, thank you. I'm, I'm relatively certain about those numbers. I, you know, yeah, good job. Yeah. No, 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 no. Good, good numbers. Good numbers. Yeah, but, but if you, if you do all of those things, then let's talk about making women have children because at that point in time, they will be able to afford to have the child. They will be afford to put the child in a better school system. They will be able to take the time off. You will not be punishing a woman for maybe a choice she didn't even make. Maybe, you know, her her older neighbor decided that he wanted to do this to her, and she had no choice in the matter. But but let me go to Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken, yeah. it, it seems to me that we, as in the, in the years since the decision of Roe v. Wade— have almost become desensitized to that decision. And, and we've made it that much easier, that much more readily available. Is there is there a problem with us having some sort of, you know, at least state restrictions on saying, okay, look, we're not going to tell you no, but we really, really want you to think about this as opposed to, oh, you know what, just not today. I, I think the problem, I think quite frankly, it, it, the problem is that uh, at, at the state level and at the national level in this country, 
is that there's a lack of understanding of the fact that the the person bearing the child is the body of a woman. And we might have an opinion, but we don't get a vote. And I think that's the, the fundamental misunderstanding. Rich Rubino, you agree? Yeah, well, yes, and I, I do. And I just wanted to say one other thing in terms of you talk about how, you know, what can the states do? And first of all, a couple of things. One of them is that, you know, Roe v. Wade does not allow for abortion on demand. It says that in the third trimester, for example, that there, except for cases of the life or the mother, the states can prohibit it. But, you know, one of the things that you one of the things you ha- that has to happen if, you know, to have a positive type of solution, this is that the left and right have to come together. And one of the things that has happened, for example, is Tom DeLay, who is probably one of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives ever um, from Sugar Land, Texas. He became the majority leader of the House of Representatives. He actually worked with Hillary Clinton when Hillary Clinton was a senator from New York. And what did they work where? You know, I mean, Tom DeLay, who led the impeachment against Bill Clinton in the House of Representatives, they worked together um, on inter- they worked together on adoption. And there was actually a signing ceremony. This was actually before she became first lady, too, but before she became senator too, when she was first lady, there was you know a signing ceremony on the White House lawn where Bill Clinton signed legislation to encourage adoption. And it was you know Tom Delay because he's against abortion, and then he says, well, how, one of the best way to avoid to avoid people making that choice to have an abortion is adoption. And Hillary Clinton, who believes that the government has a role in supporting adoption, so that's what has to happen is that the two sides have to come together. And one of the things you know is to prevent abortion certainly happening in the first place, and that's where you know, sex education, for example, I think comes in. But yeah, there. I mean, that's what has to happen. The left and the right have to, you know, come together because they both generally have the same. They both generally have the same goals, which is, I think that I think very few people on the left would say, "I want to have more abortions." I think we should increase the size of abortions. What they're saying is, I think the woman should have the right to choose, but they're not necessarily saying that, you know, every woman should have an abortion. So if the left and the right come together, I think that. I think that there are issues in adoption is certainly one of them. Yeah, and let me be clear about one thing is is and I and I'm speaking from myself only is I I believe that the, that the laws coming out of Alabama, uh, Georgia, uh, Arkansas th- that whole grouping of 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 laws the heartbeat laws that are coming out of Mississippi, mm-hmm. Kentucky, Ohio are absolutely way over the top. I think the I think the uh Louis the Louisiana law is just out of control. What I will say though is excuse me and 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 make no mistake about it is there there's no there's no denying this is not an easy decision for anybody. And I mean anybody because I I I think that you know we we've put the focus on the women which is this is her body this is her right to do and make decisions on this what i will say though is there is as laura pointed out a hundred percent of pregnancies also include a male Mm -hmm. the the reality is that we have not looked i i think it's become so polarizing so politicized that we haven't looked at the practicality of you know what you know we we do need to look at, as Laura pointed out, uh, you know, how do we support the children that are wanted in today's society versus the ones that may be unwanted? I mean, do we want to bring a child into a low-income poverty situation with 
no male figures and no ability to come out of that cycle of poverty that that's what we need to look at but at the same time i also see people that have had children they may not have wanted them but they they had the child and those child those those children have become successful productive adults in society some of them have become to make great amounts of money and become very uh influential people in society this is obviously a situation we're going to be talking about for a while we're going to keep an eye on this and we'll bring up any sort of updates and we'll talk about this in future episodes but uh on behalf of laura chavez admiral ken caradine uh rich rabino and we have uh obviously special thanks to rob the engineer he's been hitting the cough button for me so i appreciate that where'd intern go Oh, you had big things to do. Uh, Other than this? Other than this? I know. Come on. He needs to get his priorities in order real quick. Yeah, I'm your host, Justin Russell. Hey, by the way, you can follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can download us as a podcast on all of your favorite, including Spotify. We're kind of a big deal now. You can follow us on Instagram, too. We're kind of photographic that way. Hey, uh, have a great week, America. We'll see you soon.